The Libyan Hanno left Carthage and sailed beyond the pillars of Heracles on the Atlantic Ocean, keeping Libya, Africa, on his left hand. He sailed eastwards for 35 days, but when he turned to the south, he encountered many problems. Lack of water, burning heat, and rivers of fire flowing into the sea. Arian. Indique. Hello. My name is not Arian. My name is Guillaume Lamotte. I like to start my podcast with quotes from ancient authors. I hope it gets my audience thinking and it puts me personally into the mood. The ancient Carthaginians, which Greeks like Arian sometimes referred to as Libo-Phoenicians, you know, African Phoenicians, were not only great rivals of the Western Greek city-states, such as Massalia and Syracuse, but were also great traders and explorers in their own right. In my podcast, The History of Exploration, I take a look at the great voyages of discovery that allowed our ancestors to gradually discover the world they inhabited. The Carthaginian, Hanno, sometimes called Hanno the Navigator, is actually one of the first explorers that we know about in recorded history, and so gets the star treatment in one of my podcast's earlier episodes. The full text of his journey, which was preserved in the Temple of Baal in Carthage until the Romans burned it down, details the many hardships, near misses, and terrifying encounters that this potentially greatest of Carthaginian sailor had to put up with as he sailed down the coast of West Africa. So, if you can't get enough Hanno after Ryan's excellent telling of today's episode, why don't you come by the History of Exploration and see if there might be anything there for you? All right, Ryan, take it away. Hello, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 29, The First Greco-Punic War. As we have seen, the Greeks living in Sicily and southern Italy behaved pretty much like the mainland Greeks, expanding their political and commercial domain at the expense of their neighbors, while keeping the feud between the Ionians and the Dorians alive. In Sicily, the Ionian Greeks on the whole had friendly relations with native Sicilians and the Phoenicians, but the Dorian Greek colonies were comparatively more aggressive, expanding inland from the coast at the expense of the natives to expand their domain. Conflicts among the Greek colonies and between the natives and Greeks had erupted, but these were mostly localized affairs. Trade also flourished between the natives, the Greeks, and the Phoenicians, and the Greek colonies became prosperous because of it. This prosperity enabled some of the Greek cities to start to expand their territories again, ultimately leading to the events known as the First Greco-Punic War. The island of Sicily, lying at Carthage's doorstep, became the arena in which this conflict played out. But before we get there, let's bring the events on Sicily up to speed. Following the death of Darius, Sicilian Greeks, probably the cities of Acragas, Gela, and Selenus, engaged in undated hostilities of revenge against Carthage, which led to a peace treaty that brought economic benefits for the Greeks. Ultimately, the Carthaginians returned their attention back to Sardinia after 510 BC. This episode possibly demonstrated the futility of opposing Carthage by single Greek cities or the unreliability of aid from mainland Greece, a situation that would change with the rise of the Greek tyrants in Sicily. For the next several decades, most of the major players in Greece-Sicily fell under the rule of tyrants. The first involved, in 507 BC, was Cleander, who made himself tyrant of Gela, which had been previously subject to an oligarchy. He founded what is called 
the Pantarid Dynasty. It has been suggested that Cleander was responsible for building Gela's first city wall due to a problematic relationship with the native Sickles, a situation thought to have been caused by Cleander himself. He was also involved in hostilities with the Carthaginians. He reigned for seven years, until 498 BC, when he was murdered by a man named Sibyllus, who wanted to see the introduction of democracy in the city. Instead, power was transferred to Cleander's brother, Hippocrates, not to be confused with the famous physician from Cos. Under him, Gela began its expansion phase. Hippocrates aimed to conquer all of southeastern Sicily in order to build a great state with Gela as its capital. He formed an alliance with Acragus and conquered both Ionian and Dorian Greek territories in Xanthal, Camarina, Catania, Naxos, and Leontini. He also managed to besiege the Syracusans on the banks of the Hylorus, but had to withdraw due to Corinthian and Corsiran involvement in the war. But as a result, Syracuse was forced to cede its dependency, Camarina, to Hippocrates. During his government, his city became the most powerful and flourishing among the Greek colonies in Sicily. Following the end of the Ionian Revolt, more on that in a future episode, in 494 BC, Samian and Milesian fugitives fled westward looking to colonize a new city. The inhabitants of Zankel had offered them assistance in founding a new city on the northern shore of Sicily. At that time, Zankel was under the rule of a tyrant named Scythes, who had been appointed to that post by Hippocrates of Gela. When the colonists arrived, Scythes and the Zanclians were engaged in hostilities against the Sickles. The tyrant of Regium, a man named Anaxilus, encouraged them to take advantage of Scythes' absence and to seize Zankel, which sat across from Regium on the strait. In response, Scythes asked for the assistance of his ally, Hippocrates of Gela. However, Hippocrates proved to be just as untrustworthy as the Samians. On his arrival, he placed Scythes in chains and sent him away as a prisoner. He then betrayed his allies, the Zanclians, so that they fell into the hands of the Samians, who ruled the city in his name. Scythes, however, somehow was able to escape, the manner in which was not recorded. But he was able to make his way to Himera. He then proceeded to the court of Darius, king of Persia, where he was received with much distinction and rose to a high place in the king's favor. Herodotus writes that an ancestor of the founders of Gela, a man named Gelon, fought in a number of these conflicts between the various tyrant kings of Sicily and earned a reputation as a formidable soldier. His performance was so impressive that he was promoted to be the commander of the cavalry for Hippocrates. From this position, he played a key role in a number of battles, including the siege against the Syracusans. Gelon's father was Dinomenes. According to tradition, he had consulted an oracle about the fates of his children and was told that all three were destined to become kings, and thus the tyranny that followed has been called by modern scholars as the Dinomenid tyranny. So since I've already ruined what's going to happen, let's jump right into it. After ruling for seven years, Hippocrates died in 491 BC in battle against the Sickles at Hebla. He had designated his sons, Euclides and Cleander, who was named after his uncle, as his successors, but the common people were tired of their family's rule and revolted. Gelon, though, quelled the revolt on the pretext of helping Hippocrates' sons gain power, but instead, he took power for himself with the help of the army, and thus made himself the new tyrant of Gela. During the succession struggle, Anaxilus besieged his ankle, drove the Samians out, and peopled it with fresh inhabitants, 
claiming it for himself. And so now, the territory under the control of Gelon as tyrant only included that of Gela, Naxos in the east, and Camarina in the south. Gelon ruled over Gela and his other territories in eastern Sicily peacefully for the next five years. But in 485 BC, the aristocracy of Syracuse, called the Gomori, who had been forced out of the city by the common people, came to Gelon seeking his aid. Seeing an opportunity for expansion, Gelon used his large military force to capture the city of Syracuse with little or no resistance and reinstated the exiled Gomori. Gelon then chose to rule as the new tyrant of Syracuse and left his brother Huron to rule over Gela. For his efforts, Gelon is often referred to as the second founder of Syracuse. By this point, the settlement of Syracuse occupied not only the island of Ortigia, but also extended to the mainland, where there was ample room for expansion between the coast and the heights of Epipoli, in a district known as Acredina. Gelon enlarged this area and encompassed it within the mainland settlement with a wall. Its chief gate was now in this new wall, close to the harbor. While Ortigia still remained the Acropolis per se, a new agora was laid out near the chief gate because the old agora on Ortigia no longer sufficed. Nearby docks were built because Gelon wanted to turn Syracuse into the naval power of Sicily. Until now, despite the natural advantages of its location, Syracuse had been less wealthy and less powerful than its neighbors Acragas and Gela, and its supremacy had been locally only. But Gelon transformed Syracuse into the dominant and most prosperous power in Sicily. In order to find inhabitants to fill up this newly enlarged city, Gelon transplanted peoples on a large scale from other cities in his dominion. In this effort, he forced half of the citizens of Gela to move to Syracuse. Harsher, though, was the fate of Camarina, as he removed all of its inhabitants and forcefully removed them to Syracuse. He continued this strategy as he conquered nearby Megara Hablaia in 483 BC. Camarina and Megara Hablaia then became outposts of Syracuse. By using ethnic cleansing, deportation, and enslavement, Gelon transformed the former Ionian cities into Doric ones. By abolishing cities and transplanting populations, Gelon would set an example, which, as we shall see, will be followed by later Sicilian tyrants. In both of these cases, Gelon only accepted those from the aristocracy, granting them Syracusan citizenship, while placing the rest of the population in slavery. He did this because he held disdain for the commoners. According to Herodotus, because he was raised as a noble and was constantly in the presence of nobility, Gelon did not care for the lower classes and found them unpleasant to share a house with. He even called them thankless neighbors. Gelon held court at Syracuse like a king, surrounded only by men of noble birth. However, he was not as unpopular with the common people as you might think probably because of the wonderful benefits he was bringing about for the city. Gelon sought also to create a powerful mercenary army. Most of the recruits for this army came from the native Sickle tribes. However, some were recruited from the Greek mainland, men who had most likely fought with Gelon at some point in the past, and their total number was said to have been around 10,000. All of these men were granted Syracusan citizenship also. Gelon found a powerful ally in Theron the tyrant of Acragas. Theron became tyrant five years earlier in 488 BC by using public funds allocated for the hire of private contractors meant to assist with a temple building project to instead hire a personal group of bodyguards. With this force at his disposal, 
he was able to seize control of the town's government. He took over neighboring sickle lands to forestall any conflicts between the two growing powers of Acragas and Syracuse. In 483 BC, Gelon married Theron's daughter, Demerita, and in return, Theron married a niece of Gelon, the daughter of his older brother, Polyzalus. In addition to Huron, who was acting as the tyrant of Gela at this point, he also had a third brother named Thrasybulus. These marriages linked the three most powerful cities of the time in Greek Sicily, that being Gela, Syracuse, and Acragas, and created a unified front against the Sicils and Ionian Greeks of Sicily. To counter this Doric threat, Anaxilus of Region allied himself with Tyrillus of Himera. Tyrillus had come to power after expelling the ruling oligarchs, who then took refuge in Acragas. He probably lacked popular support, and thus sought to consolidate his power by giving his daughter, Sidippe, in marriage to Anaxilus of Region. Himera and Region next became allies of Carthage by building up personal relationships with their general Hamilcar. Selenus, a Doric city whose territory bordered Theron's domain, also became a Carthaginian ally. Perhaps the fear of Theron and the destruction of its mother city, Megara had played a part in this decision. And so, three power blocks were delicately balanced in Sicily by 483 BC, with the Ionians dominating the north, Carthage in the west, and the Dorians the east and the south. The Sicils and Sicani in the interior remained passive, and if not directly under Greek rule, they did not hinder the movements of their forces. The Alemians were still allied with the Carthaginians. But that balance wouldn't even last a year, because shortly after cementing his alliance with Gelon, Theron went to war with the cities of Selenus and Himera. The latter resulted in him expelling the tyrant of Himera, Terralus, from the city and reinstating the oligarchs that had taken refuge in his city of Acragas. Thus, Terralus requested aid from his ally, the Carthaginian general Hamilcar. Anaxilus also lobbied on his behalf and even sent his own children as hostages to Carthage as a token of loyalty. That gesture ultimately was probably not necessary, as Hamilcar had already decided to use this event as a basis for extending Carthaginian power deeper into Sicily. The Magonids had close ties with Sicily, and Hamilcar's own mother was Syracusan. The solemn ties of guest friendship, called Xenia, perhaps combined with concerns for the island's western ports, prompted him into action. It appears that the expedition remained a private enterprise, undertaken by the Magonids, rather than by the Carthaginian state. Since he was very much in tune with the political situation of Sicily, he was concerned with the strength of the combined Greek army, and thus spent the next three years preparing for the largest Punic overseas expedition to date before sailing to Sicily. Meanwhile, Gelon and Theron began to mobilize their forces. But over the winter of 481-480 BC, representatives of Athens went to Syracuse, asking Gelon for aid in their upcoming war against Xerxes and his Persian army. More on that in an upcoming episode. Gelon first complained that the Greeks had spurned his request of aid against the Carthaginians in the past, but he ultimately offered to help, saying that he could supply 28,000 men, as well as 200 warships. The caveat, though, was that he had to be appointed as commander of either the Greek navy or the army. Well, that position fell to the Spartans officially for both, with the Athenians as the unofficial leader of the navy, though, and thus he was denied. 
He knew full and well that his proposal would be unacceptable to the mainland Greeks, who held a sort of superior-than-thou snobbery towards their western cousins. Quite simply, the Sicilian Greeks had been treated as second-class members of the Hellenes, and since they refused to give them the proper respect he felt they deserved, he sent the envoys home empty-handed. He compounded this lack of Panhellenic solidarity by going so far as to prepare gifts for Xerxes, in case the Persian king had won the war, in order to gain special favors with him. He sent three ships under Cadmus of Kaz to Delphi, with specific instructions to offer the gifts and Syracuse's loyalty to Xerxes if the Persians were victorious. If the Greeks won, then he was swiftly to bring the money back to Syracuse. Regardless, Gelon's unwillingness to support the Greek mainlanders could have been less about his own personal ego and more about the threat the Carthaginians were posing on the western coast of Sicily. In fact, the Carthaginians attacked almost immediately at the same time of Xerxes' expedition against the mainland Greeks in 480 BC, prompting speculation by both ancient and modern scholars about a possible alliance between Carthage and Persia to attack both the western and eastern fronts of Greece and its colonies simultaneously in the hopes that it would prevent either front from aiding the other. Although there exists no firm evidence to corroborate this theory, and thus it's purely speculation, there is no denying that two great wars, the Greco-Persian and the Greco-Punic, each pitting the Greeks against their biggest adversaries in their respective theaters, had poured forth at the exact same moment. The causes which led to the one were independent of those which led to the other, but it is not entirely implausible that the courts of Susa and Carthage exchanged messages, probably through the mediation of the Levantine Phoenicians, and were conscious that they were acting in concert against the same enemy. In any case, the events that followed were recorded in great detail by Diodorus Siculus, who was writing in the 1st century BC, and was relying on sources that we no longer have. He writes that when preparations for war were complete, Hamilcar set sail with a force of 300,000 men. His army was typical of a Carthaginian army, being a multi-ethnic mercenary coalition, with various North African, Mediterranean, and Iberian fighters, with very few true Carthaginian citizens. Hamilcar, however, was not joined by his Greek allies of Selenus and Anaxilus of Region. In any event, all of his troops and heavy war chariots were fitted aboard 3,000 transport ships and escorted by 60 triremes. The army had no siege engines, and the Etruscans and the Elemians, allies in past struggles against the Greeks, were also not a part of it. The numbers are clearly inflated, though. In fact, the Punic army at its largest may have only doubled that of the Greeks, whose combined army from Himera, Acragas, Syracuse, and Gela, all led by Gelon, numbered 50,000 foot soldiers and 5,000 cavalry. Gelon had suspected that Hamilcar would sail first to Selenus and then try to attack Acragas on the southern side of Sicily, since Theron and his contingent of forces were held up at Himera. But Hamilcar caught Gelon off guard and instead went around the western coast of the island, straight for Himera. But the Punic fleet was battered by storms en route, destroying all of the ships that transported his heavy chariots, which would be a significant factor in the coming battle. The Carthaginian fleet eventually landed at Panormus, on the northern coast of Sicily. Hamilcar spent three days reorganizing his forces and repairing his battered fleet, before advancing east towards Himera, while the fleet sailed alongside the coast to provide provisions. 
He took this direct route because he wished either to maintain an element of surprise or to advertise to the Greeks the very limited scope of this operation. However, any hoped-for advantage created by catching Gelon unaware was lost when secret letters setting out Carthaginian tactical plans were intercepted. Thus, although he guessed wrong, Gelon was able to receive word that Hemera was Hamilcar's real target in enough time to race his army northward to meet them. The city of Hemera sits on top of a hill, about 400 feet high, on the western bank of the river Hemera. The Carthaginians erected two camps near the city, one to the north, by the sea, for the ships, surrounded by a palisade and a ditch, and a second one to the southwest, on a low hill for the army. The land and sea camps were joined by siege works. It is not known if Hamilcar wished to build siege weapons while at Hemera, or simply wished to draw the enemy out to battle. Anyways, after the camps were erected, the Punic ships dropped off provisions at the northern sea camp, and some were sent to Sardinian Africa for more supplies, while some patrolled the sea, and the rest were beached near the sea camp. So after gaining control of the entire western side, Hamilcar felt confident enough to place Hemera under siege. He led a picked body of men on a reconnaissance mission and defeated the Greeks in a minor skirmish outside Hemera. This allowed Carthaginian foragers to ravage the territory around the city. Theron, who was left behind to guard the city with a smaller force, this entire time desperately was sending messages to Gelon, who happened to just arrive in time with his army and encamped on the eastern side of the river. Gelon's cavalry managed to capture many of the foragers, as Hamilcar had no cavalry present to counter his moves. Herodotus and Diodorus Siculus give very different versions of the battle. Although Diodorus provides a much more detailed account, he was also writing much, much later. Anyways, according to Herodotus, the Greek and Punic armies fought from dawn to dusk, while Hamilcar watched the battle from his camp and offered sacrifices to the Phoenician god Baal in a huge fire. No information on numbers, battle formation, or battle site is given. When the Carthaginian army was routed towards dusk, Hamilcar jumped into the sacrificial fire. His body was never found, and the Greeks erected a monument to his memory where he supposedly died. Herodotus noted that the Sicilian tradition held that this battle and the Battle of Salamis were fought on the same day. According to Diodorus, the actions of the Greek cavalry encountering Carthaginian foragers had prompted Hamilcar to send a letter to Selenus, requesting them to send their cavalry to Hemera on a given date when Hamilcar was supposed to offer sacrifice to Poseidon, a Greek deity whose worship probably required the presence of Greeks. The letter was intercepted by Gelon's men. Apparently, the Carthaginians were really bad at sending letters. Anyways, after reading the letter, Gelon conceived a daring strategy. He planned to use his own cavalry to impersonate the Selenute reinforcement and infiltrate the Carthaginian camp, while his army attacked the land camp. Gelon's horsemen left their camp on the night before the appointed day, and at daybreak, these horsemen arrived at the Carthaginian sea camp, where they were admitted into the camp, as the Carthaginians were not able to distinguish physical differences amongst the peoples of the two Greek cities. Meanwhile, when they were spotted as being inside the Carthaginian camp from those on the walls of Hemera, a signal was given to Gelon. It is not known if the Syracusan army was inside Gelon's camp or had assembled somewhere outside at that time. The Greeks marched around the south end of Hemera 
and moved towards the Carthaginian land camp. Theron and his army stayed put in Himera. The Carthaginian army left their camp and formed up on the hill, forcing the Greeks to fight an uphill battle. The struggle was fierce and long, and neither side gained any advantages. Sometime after the battle was joined, the disguised Greek horsemen, dressed in white clothes and carrying myrtle branches, with bows concealed under them, killed Hamilcar while he was preparing a sacrifice to Poseidon. The Greek cavalry then set fire to the beached ships, causing great confusion at the sea camp. After this, though, it is not known what further role the Greek cavalry played in the battle. But the Carthaginians rushed out to save whatever ships they could, and some of the ships, overcrowded with soldiers, managed to leave the site altogether. When the news of Hamilcar's death and the burning of the ships reached the fighting armies, the Greeks pressed harder. Without their leader, the Carthaginian troops fought as best as they could, but they were no match for Galon and his hoplites. The result was a Carthaginian rout, forcing them to flee to their camp. Galon's army stormed the Carthaginian camp, and the Greeks scattered to loot the tents. The Iberians of the Carthaginian army had now reformed, and then attacked the now disordered Greeks, inflicting severe casualties. The Greeks fought back, but they were hard-pressed, and the Iberians got the upper hand in the struggle. At this critical juncture, Theron decided to join the battle. He directed his attack on the flank and the rear of the Iberian position inside the camp, and also set fire to tents near them. The Iberians finally gave way, and retreated to the ship still afloat. Other Carthaginian survivors left the camp and retreated to a hill inland, where they attempted to defend themselves. The hill was waterless, and they were ultimately forced to surrender. About half of the Carthaginian army, which would be 150,000 if you believe the exaggerated numbers previously mentioned, and a majority of the fleet were now destroyed, while numerous prisoners and rich booty had fallen into Greek hands. The surviving Carthaginian ships were sunk in a storm on their return journey to Africa. As an interesting aside, during the construction of a railway extension in 2008, Near the site of ancient Himera, archaeologists have uncovered more than 10,000 graves. A number of those hold the remains of 5th century BC soldiers, which the archaeologists believe fought in the Battle of Himera. Gelon and Theron did not attack Regium, or the Carthaginian territory in Sicily, after the battle. When news reached Carthage, the city went into complete lockdown. They initially manned the city walls and prepared for a Greek counter-invasion of Africa while Carthaginian ambassadors were sent to Gelon's court to implore him for peace. He wasn't quite sure if he wanted to accept it, but luckily for the Carthaginians, there was a voice of reason present. His wife and Theron's daughter, Demerita, advised him to take the peace while he was ahead, and so he listened to her. The Carthaginians were so grateful to the queen that they had crafted for her a crown made from a hundred gold talents, a tremendous sum. Gelon offered mild terms to the Carthaginian embassy. Carthage had to pay 2,000 silver talents as indemnity to cover war costs, and erect two monuments in the memory of Himera to hold copies of the peace treaty. Any prisoners of war were taken to Gelon's stone quarries at Syracuse to live and die as slaves. Himera was now reorganized as part of Syracuse's control. However, Carthage did not lose any of its Sicilian territory in the west. Selenus and Region also came to peace terms with Syracuse, and Anaxilus of Region married his daughter to Huron, the brother of Gela and the current tyrant of Acragas. 
The status quo before the battle was reestablished with Terralis being the ultimate loser, as he did not get his tyranny back at Hemera. Afterwards, Greek culture and trade flourished throughout Sicily. Gelon, Theron, and Huron built public buildings using the slaves and spoils gained from the battle, such as the Temple of Victory at Hemera. An era of prosperity had begun, but infighting amongst the tyrants would ensure that the peace was not unbroken. The riches collected from the Carthaginian camp, as well as the silver that resulted from the peace treaty with Carthage, were dispersed by Gelon amongst his troops and his allies, with a large amount designated for the construction of a new temple in Syracuse. According to Herodotus, upon his return to Syracuse, Gelon organized a meeting with the people and described to them his actions during the war with Hamilcar and the manner in which he dispersed these spoils. He told them that if they found anything wrong in his conduct, they were free to kill him and take control of Syracuse for themselves. The people of Syracuse did not call his bluff and decided to keep Gelon as their tyrant, just as he suspected, and he continued his reign in peace for the next two years. Gelon died naturally in 478 BC after ruling Syracuse for seven years. Gelon's first major contribution to Greek history was the foundation of Syracuse as his capital, which he turned into arguably the greatest Greek city in the West. The location of the city itself made it a prime spot for such a role, as the city was located on an island, connected to the mainland by a peninsula, faced east towards the Greek mainland, and had its own harbor. Gelon constructed a wall that ran from the fort of Acradina on the mainland to the sea, making Syracuse virtually impregnable. Also, by bringing in the wealthy citizens from conquered cities, a tactic never used before in Sicily, he greatly increased the prosperity of the city. He constructed a theater, which improved the city's culture, and following the victory at Hemera, he built an ornate temple dedicated to the goddess Athena. All of these improvements influenced the history of Syracuse for many years. The other great contribution of Gelon was the victory at Hemera over the Carthaginians. The battle was significant because of the timing and location of the event. There is little doubt that if Hamilcar had managed to defeat the large Sicilian force of Gelon and Theron, he could have conquered the entire island of Sicily if he so wished. The Greek states on the mainland would have been unable to send troops due to their own war with the Persians. If, as many historians believe, the Persian and Carthaginian armies were in contact with each other, a defeated Himera for Gelon could have led to a two-pronged attack on the Greek mainland by the Persians and the Carthaginians, and perhaps to the eventual demise of Greek civilization. Gelon seems to have been highly regarded by his subjects, at least partially due to his victory at the Battle of Himera. This respect is apparent from the elaborate tomb and statue built in his memory at public expense. Despite Gelon's mistreatment of conquered people, his reputation as a respected tyrant and generous king survived the passage of time. Perhaps the greatest testament to his influence over Sicily is how his statue was spared as Timoleon tried to erase all memory of the reign of tyrants when Sicily became a democracy 150 years after Gelon's death. But I'm getting ahead of myself. There'll be more on this in a future episode. Theron of Acragas had survived the Battle of Hemera for eight years until 472 BC, and during that time he had been engaged in doing for Acragas what Gelon had done for Syracuse. That is, turning it into a first-rate Greek polis, 
The area of Acragas, though, didn't need to be enlarged like Syracuse, as it had already been done a century earlier by Phalaris. But Theron's task laid instead on rebuilding the city, and particularly its temples, on a more magnificent scale. Not only was there a huge quantity of war booty, but an enormous number of prisoners of war were available to labor on a number of these ambitious building projects, the most magnificent of which was the Temple of Olympian Zeus, in which a series of giant columns depicting what are thought to be the sculpted figures of Punic slaves were built as supports between the columns. It was the largest Doric temple ever constructed. Unfortunately, Theron wouldn't survive the completion of these grand temples. Regardless, he laid the foundations for the greatness of Acragas in the 5th century BC. Meanwhile, after the death of Gelon in 478 BC, there was a bit of a succession crisis between his two brothers, Huron and Polyzalus. While Huron was to have sovereign power, Gelon had desired that Polyzalus, whom in his will he had ordered to marry his widow Demerita, should have the supreme command of the Syracusan army. The idea of this dual system was unwise, and it naturally led to fraternal discord. Polyzalus was popular at Syracuse and had the support of Theron, so Huron saw him as a dangerous rival, and in the end, Polyzalus was compelled to seek refuge at Acragas. This led to an open breach between Huron and Theron, but it did not come to actual war, and it is said that the lyric poet Simonides, who was a favorite at both courts, acted as a peacemaker. The compromise that was made was that Huron would move to Syracuse and take over as tyrant for the city, while Polyzalus would rule over Gela. Huron essentially completed the work done at Himera by waging war against the Etruscans, the other rival power that threatened the Western Greeks. As you may recall from the last episode, Etruscan power in central Italy was severely weakened after they lost a land battle to the Cumaeans and the Romans overthrew the Etruscan kings and established the Republic in the late 6th century BC. Well, with their dwindling influence in Latium, thanks to the Romans, possession of Cumae became an even more important Etruscan objective because the Cumaean Greeks threatened the communications of Etruria with its dominion in Campania. Since they had failed in trying to secure the city by land, the Etruscans chose to secure the sea passage along the Italian coast and force their cooperation. Thus, the Cumaeans called upon Huron, who was leading the most powerful Western Greek military at the time, for assistance, and the combined navies of Syracuse and Cumae squared off against the Etruscans in the Bay of Naples in what is known as the Battle of Cumae in 474 BC. The result was a decisive Etruscan defeat. Afterwards, the Etruscans ceased to be a political power in Italy. They lost control of the Tyrrhenian Sea and would lose their territory to the expansionist Romans, Samnites, and Gauls over the next century. They no longer would be a menace to the development of Magna Graecia. A bronze Etruscan helmet, now in the British Museum, with an inscription commemorating this event, was dedicated by the Syracusans at Olympia, and Pindar of Thebes immortalized the victory in his first Pythian ode. It is perhaps from the hymns of Pindar and Bacchylides that we get the most lively impression of the wealth and culture of the courts of Sicily in the 5th century BC. As the tyrants of Syracuse and Acragas were huge patrons of literature and culture, much like the Pisistratus of Athens. 
In addition to Pindar and Bacchylides, the poets Simonides, Aeschylus, and Epicharmus, as well as the philosopher-poet Xenophanes, were all active at the courts of the tyrants. Huron, Theron, and Polyzolus were also participants in the Panhellenic Athletic Contests, as they sent racehorses and chariots to contend in the great games at Olympia and Delphi, and even won several victories. Pindar and Bacchylides were commissioned to celebrate their victories, and these poets give us an impression of the luxury and magnificence of the royal courts and the generosity of the royal victors. Yet amid all their own magnificence, and amid their absorbing political activity, these tyrants of the younger Western world coveted above all things that their name should be glorious in the mother country. They still looked to the holy place of Delphi as the central sanctuary of the world, and they enriched it with rich dedications, the most famous of which is a bronze charioteer, now housed in the Delphi Archaeological Museum, that is one of the best-known statues surviving from ancient Greece. It is easy to be blinded by the outward show by these tyrants, but underneath their veneer of wealth and ostentatiousness, we see serious problems. The system of spies which Huron organized to watch the lives of the Syracusans shows the tyrant's paranoid manner. One of his most despotic acts was his dealing with the city of Catania. He deported all of its inhabitants to Leontini, repopulated the city with new Dorian citizens, and gave it the name of Etna. His motive was partly vanity, partly selfish prudence. He aspired to be remembered and worshipped as the founder of a city, and he also intended Etna to be a stronghold of refuge for himself or his family, in case a day of peril should come. He installed his son, Dinomenes, as tyrant of Etna. While Theron ruled mildly at Acragas and held the love and trust of his fellow citizens, at Himera he showed the cruel nature that the tyrants would become known for. After the Sicilian Greeks rescued Himera from Tyrellus and the Carthaginians, Theron had placed the government of the city under his son, Thrasydias, who, by his violent and arbitrary conduct, alienated the citizens so that they were close to revolt. But when they applied for support to Huron of Syracuse, he betrayed them to Theron, who, in consequence, put to death anyone who showed discontent by his son's rule. Whether Thrasydeus retained his position at Himera after this, we do not know. But on the death of his father in 472 BC, he succeeded without opposition to the sovereignty of both cities. But his tyrannical and violent character soon displayed itself and made him as unpopular at Acragas as he had been at Himera. His first objective was to renew the war with Heron, against whom he had already taken an active part during his father's lifetime. So in 471 BC, he assembled a large force of mercenaries, besides a general levy from Acragas and Himera, and advanced against Heron. But he was defeated after a stubborn and bloody struggle, and the people of Acragas immediately took advantage of this disaster to expel him from their city. He made his escape to mainland Greece, but was arrested at Megara, and publicly executed. Acragas and Himera became independent and adopted a free democratic constitution, the details of which are unknown, though. Meanwhile, up north in Regium, Anaxilus died in 476 BC. However, neither of his two sons were old enough to succeed him as tyrant, so a man named Macuthus became the effective tyrant of Regium. Macuthus, at first, was a slave in the service of Anaxilus but somehow arose to such a high place in the confidence of his master that Anaxilus had left him as guardian of his infant sons, charged to hold the sovereign power 
in trust for them until they attained manhood. His administration appears to have been both wise and vigorous, so that he conciliated the affections of his subjects and held the government both of Regium and Messana, undisturbed by any popular commotions. One of the principal events of his reign was the assistance furnished by him to the Tarentines in their war against the Iapians in 473 BC, which was terminated by a disastrous defeat, in which 3,000 of the Regians perished, and the fugitives were pursued by the Iapians up to the very gates of the city. But notwithstanding this blow, shortly after, at 471 BC, he was still powerful enough to found a new colony, the city of Pyxis, or Buxentum, as it was later called by the Romans. It was possibly from jealousy of Macuthus that Huron, tyrant of Syracuse, who had been on friendly terms with Anaxilus, was induced to invite the sons of the former tyrant, who were now grown up to manhood, to his court. After they arrived, he urged them to require of their guardian the surrender of his sovereign power back over to them, because it was their birthright, not his, as well as an account from him of his administration. After an unknown amount of time at his court, Huron then sent the young princes back off to Regium in 467 BC, at which point Macuthus immediately complied with their request. And after rendering an exact account of the period of his rule, he resigned the supreme power and departed with all of his private wealth to the Peloponnese, where he settled at Tegea in Arcadia, and resided there the rest of his life in honor and tranquility. He is also mentioned by Pausanias as having distinguished himself by the number of statues and other offerings that he dedicated at Olympia. That same year, Huron died while in Etna, and thus was buried there, and he received the honors which are accorded to heroes, as he had been the founder of the city. But his grave was later destroyed when the former inhabitants of the city returned, and it soon became Catania again. The tyranny at Syracuse lasted only a year or so after his death. He was replaced by his brother Thrasybulus, who was a less able and dexterous ruler than his two older brothers. Gelon was beloved by the people because of his mild rule and for his victory against the Carthaginians. Huron was not beloved because he did not rule over the people in the same manner, as he was avaricious and violent and held disdain for the lower classes. But the people showed goodwill towards him because of their respect for his older brother. But with Thrasybulus, who surpassed Huron in wickedness, that goodwill ran out. He drove many people into exile on trumped-up charges and then confiscated their property and had many people put to death unjustly simply because he didn't like them. He executed these actions with a large body of mercenary soldiers. And so, after 11 months, in 466 BC, the citizens finally had had enough and rose up in mass in revolt. They obtained help from other Sicilian cities, notably Gela, Acragus, and Selenus. The tyrant and his mercenaries held the region of Acredina and the old island of Artesia whereas the rest of the city was in the hands of the Syracusans. After suffering two humiliating losses on land and sea, Thrasybulus was forced to open up peace negotiations. He retired under a truce to Locris and entered into private life. Thus, the Dinomenid tyranny came to an end. One of the consequences of the rule of the Dinomenid tyranny at Syracuse was that it wiped out the old feud between the nobles and the commoners and in its place a new strife arose. The old citizens, nobles and commoners alike, distrusted the new citizens, whom Gelon had gathered from all quarters. A civil war broke out following the end of the tyranny, 
and for some time, the old citizens were excluded from both Ortigia and Acredina. But in the end, all the newcomers were driven out, and a democracy was established at Syracuse. The extent to which Syracuse was a democracy, in the same sense as Athens during this period, is unknown though. But the Feast of Eleutheria was founded to preserve the memory of this dawn of freedom. It was at this point that the aristocratic citizens that had been displaced to Syracuse by Gelon returned to Gela. After Huron had left Gela for Syracuse, and thus left Gela under control of his younger brother, Polyzelus, a decade earlier, the history of the city becomes uncertain. It has been suggested that the citizens also freed themselves from the rule of tyrants and established a democratic form of government before the Syracusans had, since they aided them in getting rid of their tyranny. The fate of Polyzelus is unknown, though. So with that, we have one more Sicilian tyranny to bring to an end. Meanwhile, the eldest of Anaxilus's two sons, Leophron, acted as tyrant of Regium and Messana. He is mentioned as waging a war against the neighboring city of Locris, and is displaying his magnificence in horse racing at the Olympic Games. His victory on that occasion was celebrated by Simonides. But his reign only lasted six years, and in 461 BC, he was also expelled by a popular insurrection, both from Regium and Messana. Just like Gela, the sources do not mention the reason for his insurrection but I suspect that it was simply due to the people getting caught up in the wave of anti-tyrannical attitudes percolating in eastern Sicily in the 460s BC. So by the end of the 460s BC, the Sicilian Greek cities had all broken away from the dominions of Gelon and Theron, and had overthrown the heirs of the two tyrants. However, the fact that the tyrants had obliterated the class distinctions, which had existed before them, meant that the cities could now start afresh, on the basis of a political equality for all. The next half-century was a period of increasing prosperity for the Sicilian polis, especially for the three greatest among them, those being Syracuse, Acragus, and Selenus. But in the place of the power blocks that had dominated Sicily, a dozen or so polis under oligarchs and democracies came into being. They continued the Ionic-Doric feud in full force, in addition to threatening the native sickles. Their bickering and future expansionist policies ultimately led to what is called the Second Greco-Punic War at the end of this century. But once again, I'm getting ahead of myself, and those events will be covered in a future episode. Back in Carthage, their defeat at Himera had far-reaching consequences, both politically and economically. Politically, the old government of entrenched nobility was ousted, replaced by the Carthaginian Republic. Quote-unquote kings, or their chief generals, were still elected though, but their power began to erode, with the Senate and the Tribunal of 104 gaining dominance in political matters, and the position of Suffet, which acted like a Roman consul or Athenian archon, becoming more influential. Although the creation of a popular assembly, in which all citizens could participate, no matter their socio-economic status, might seem to hint at some form of democratization of Carthage, this was very far from being the case, because its power was very limited in scope. As Aristotle noted with approval, wealth still remained as the defining factor in judging an individual's fitness to hold political office. These were the political institutions that would operate throughout the remainder of the city's existence. The Maganids, however, still remained the dominant political clan in Carthage, suggesting that they may have had a major hand in the formulation and implementation of these reforms. Although the suffeture was non-hereditary, 
and incumbents were selected from any elite family. Aristotle nonetheless observed that particular individuals monopolized a number of state offices simultaneously, which suggests that it was still possible for the particular clans to dominate many important posts. Furthermore, probably due to the Magonids still having influence, the posthumous reputation of Hamilcar was spared the damnation that was the usual lot for those commanders who had presided over a military defeat on this scale. In fact, his reputation appears to have been enhanced rather than diminished, as monuments were built in his memory. Perhaps the tale of his martyrdom, on the altar of guest friendship, played well with the Carthaginians, and Maganid prestige was probably protected by the surprisingly modest terms that Gelon had demanded. Carthage for the next 70 years made no recorded forays against the Greeks, nor aided either the Elemians, Sickles, or the Etruscans. Based on this absence from Greek affairs, it has been suggested that Carthage's military might took a huge hit following Himera. Regardless, the Carthaginians sought out other unique avenues to make a name for themselves in the 5th century BC, as exploration became the path that they chose. Two navigators, in particular, would sail into waters that nobody else from the Mediterranean had ever seen before, passing through the Straits of Heracles into a bold new world. So little was known about the Atlantic Ocean in antiquity that it was generally believed to be a part of a giant river that encircled the whole earth. The first of these Carthaginian explorers was Himilco, who set out with a goal to find the actual source of the tin trade in order to maximize Carthaginian profits. He wanted to entirely cut out the middleman, or more specifically, the Iberians. So as he passed through the Straits of Heracles, he turned north, hugging the western Iberian coastline. The voyage took four long months, but along the way he met with locals in northwestern Gaul, or France, sailed across the English Channel to Albion, or Great Britain, and supposedly reached Ierne, or Ireland, before he made the return journey to Carthage. His lost account of his adventures is quoted by later Roman authors, with brief mentions found in Pliny the Elder. A 4th century AD Roman author named Avianus states that while he is the first known explorer from the Mediterranean Sea to reach the northwestern shores of Europe, he was not the first to sail the northern Atlantic Ocean. That honor belonged to the Tartessians of southern Iberia, and Himilco simply followed their trade routes. In any event, his journeys were described as quite dangerous with many reports of sea monsters, possibly in order to deter Greek rivals from competing also on their new trade routes. Carthaginian accounts of monsters aided to the later myths that discouraged sailing in the Atlantic. Hanno the Navigator was the second illustrious Carthaginian explorer of the 5th century BC. His voyage is one of the very few Punic accounts that have been recorded in detail. It was found in a Greek translation of a tablet that stood in a Phoenician temple. The text, known as the Periplus, or Voyage, of Hanno, is now missing, but was known to Pliny the Elder and Arian, and his voyage was mentioned in their respective works. Herodotus mentions vague reports that the Carthaginians were off exploring beyond the Libyan coast, but since the Carthaginians were extremely secretive people when it comes to exploration, as it was tied to trade, it is completely understandable that contemporary Greeks, who were their commercial rivals, would not have heard much about the details. Pliny says that Hanno was aware of the circumnavigation of Africa by the Phoenicians that had been commissioned by the pharaoh Necho II a century earlier, and he wanted to replicate that feat from the other side. Anyways, according to the later tradition, Hanno sailed south from the Straits with a fleet of 60 ships and 30,000 men and women. 
He founded a series of seven colonies along the Atlantic coast of Morocco, with the last one being near the border of Mauritania, and supposedly was the same distance from the Pillars of Heracles, as was Carthage. None of these sites seem to have survived for very long, though, so they were probably more like glorified trading posts. It was very likely that the purpose for expedition was less about colonization and more about strengthening Carthaginian trade presence on the West African coast, which makes sense because these countries were major gold contributors at this time. Continuing south, he reached an island and reported that it contained hostile natives covered in animal skins who threw large stones at him and prevented him from landing. This implies that he made it south enough that he was now encountering people who had no idea who the Carthaginians were. After this, he arrived at a massive river, full of crocodiles and hippopotami, and then mysteriously turned his entire fleet around and went back north to his last colony. Most scholars believe this was the Senegal River, and upstream would have been a gold-bearing region, so it is quite possible that he was able to trade for some gold here, and then went back north to deposit it before heading further south. He would have omitted this to keep secret his source of gold, so that the Greeks wouldn't know about it. This is all speculation, of course. In any event, when he returned south, he sailed for 12 straight days before he pulled along the coast to resupply, where he found that the area was entirely inhabited by Ethiopians, which is the Greek catch-all name for dark-skinned people. He reports that they have gone so far enough south that his interpreters couldn't understand the local languages anymore. Well, they continued on, and at one point, they came across a mountain that spewed flames into the sky. Most historians think this description refers to Mount Cameroon an active volcano in the largest mountain in sub-Saharan Africa that is located near the coast. After seven more days of sailing and reaching the Gulf of Guinea, they made a curious discovery. Hanno found an island populated with what his interpreters called gorillae. Attempts to capture the males failed, but three of the females were taken. They were so ferocious that they were killed and their skins were transported home to Carthage and kept in a Phoenician temple. The presence of a lake and the general location of where they traveled leave scholars to feel that the most likely candidates were chimpanzees and not gorillas. After all, gorillas can't swim, so how did they make it onto the island? Also, gorillas don't throw stones to defend themselves, and they don't live in large groups, all things that Hanno reported. This is where the account ends, though. There is no indication if he continued on or returned home at this point. Arianne states that he did not voyage any further as provisions were failing him. But Pliny reports that Hanno actually managed to circumnavigate the entire African continent, from Gades to Arabia. Needless to say, there has been much argument over modern scholars as to the actual extent of Hanno's journey. The arguments for Hanno's farthest limit are predominantly for Sierra Leone, Cameroon, or Gabon. Regardless, this journey was an absolute cultural bombshell for the Carthaginians. This is evident because Hanno's account is the longest surviving account we have from ancient Carthage, presumably because his journey was viewed as so monumentous that it needed to be recorded, and thus later preserved by the Greeks. Although it is impossible completely to guarantee their historical veracity, such voyages fit well with the Carthaginians' burgeoning reputation for trade and colonization during this period. Although the reported numbers on board are clearly an exaggeration, The account makes it clear that the establishment of emporia and workshops in the coastal regions of modern-day western Morocco was an important component of the voyage. In regards to metal ores, there were sources of copper in Mauritania, gold in Gambia and Guinea-Bissau, and tin in Nigeria. As far as we know, nobody else followed in Hanno's footsteps, 
but it seems unlikely that Carthaginian merchants would have made the long and extremely hazardous journey to West Africa on a regular basis. A more plausible scenario is that the first leg of Hanno's expedition, which involved the setting up of new settlements and trading stations along the Atlantic coast in western Morocco, was the major aim of the enterprise, whereas the latter stages of the journey were solely concerned with one individual's exploration and discovery. The hub of Carthage's naval, commercial, and exploratory power flowed from a marvel of engineering, its harbor. Although records are shaky, archaeologists believe it may have been constructed as early as the time of Hanno. It would be technologically superior to any naval facility in the world in the very lifeblood of Carthage. The entire harbor was protected by an outer wall. It had a common entrance for the sea that was 70 feet wide and closed off with iron chains. Inside its gates were two separate marinas. The rectangular commercial harbor was organized with conventional walls to make as easy as possible the loading and unloading of all the goods that there were in the then-known world. A second circular harbor, the Cathone, was designed for military use. A Cathone was an interior port carved out of the land as opposed to an exterior port attached to the seaside. A series of 40 double docks were arranged symmetrically around the Cathone. Another 140 additional single docks radiated on the perimeter of the circular port, allowing the entire harbor to hold 220 ships. The nerve center of the circular island was a tall tower where trumpeteers would blare signals, heralds would give orders, and operations could be overseen. Today, a lone dry dock has been excavated, but in antiquity, it was a launch point for the wealth and power of Carthage. Meanwhile, shifting back to the central Mediterranean, the Sicilian Greeks used their victory at Hemera as an opportunity to recast a grand narrative of how a barbarous invader had attacked and attempted to destroy their very existence. During the first two decades of the 5th century BC, the notoriously quarrelsome polis of mainland Greece had twice united to repel the invading armies of Persia. So the western Greeks, who were viewed as somewhat inferior by the Aegean powers, went to an even greater extent to claim Himera as the equivalent of these great victories. The promotion of Himera and the idea of a western front against a Persian-Carthaginian alliance not only showed that Syracuse wanted a place at the table of Hellenic powers, but also provided them a convenient explanation for their absence from the war effort against Persia. Over the next few decades, Syracuse would use the huge wealth that they had accumulated to press their claims for Himera across the Greek world. Magnificent monuments were put up in prominent Greek sanctuaries, such as Delphi and Olympia, and famous poets, such as Pindar, were commissioned to write paeons celebrating their victory. Apparently, this propaganda campaign was so successful because Herodotus even believed that Salamis, the famous Greek naval victory over the Persians, had taken place on the very same day, and even later authors embraced the idea that the battle had in fact been the result of a wider conspiracy between the Carthaginians and the Persians. Regardless, the result of Greece's finest hour was the crystallization of a set of ideas about what it meant to be Greek. In particular, the exclusivity and superiority of Greek ethnicity was defined against the barbarian world around it. Now that we have covered one leg of this grand narrative of Greece versus the barbarians, let's turn our attention back east to Greece's other boogeyman, and the man who wrote all about it, the father of history, and Greece's very own fireside storyteller. So join me next time on the history of ancient Greece, 
Episode 30, Herodotus and the Rise of Persia. If you haven't done so yet, please head on over to iTunes and rate and review the show. It would help the podcast grow immensely. Also, while you're there, subscribe to the show so it comes on your phone or listening device every week. If you don't have iTunes, you can catch the show on SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Google Play. Also, make sure you're checking out the website at thehistoryofancientgreece.com, where I've posted a lot of neat supplementary photos, maps, and charts for each episode. Finally, now that the show has gained some traction, I decided to create a Patreon page in case anyone felt inclined to contribute to the creation of the History of Ancient Greece podcast. There is a link on the right-hand side of the website. But don't worry, the podcast will still remain free regardless. But it is an expensive endeavor to create a podcast after all, with the cost of website hosting and the purchasing of equipment and the time and effort required to research, write, record, and edit a show. So if you're feeling generous, consider supporting the show by making a monthly donation. If you'd rather just do a one-time donation, there is also a PayPal link on the right-hand side of the website. Just click on the Donate button. Patreon allows you to pledge money, either for every episode or per month. It can be as little as a dollar a month if you please. That amounts to a can of soda or a cup of tea or coffee a month. And while it may seem insignificant, if many people pledge that amount, it can really add up quickly. Either way, I would be eternally grateful. Speaking of which, I would like to give a huge thanks to listener Al Ozanoff, Andrea Peterson, Patrick G., and Alex for their pledges. I cannot tell you enough how thankful I am for your support. And once again, Thanks to everyone else for your continued support in making this podcast, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I would like to give a special thanks to the amazing artist Michael Levy for allowing me to feature his music on this podcast. He transports you to the ancient world, bringing to life the melodies and using the techniques of the past. A new song will be played every episode. This one is titled Anthusai, Nymphs of the Flowers, from his album the Lyre of Hermes. If you like what you heard and are curious to learn more about ancient Greek music, check out his website at ancientlyre.com. His albums are available in every major digital music store, including iTunes, Amazon, and Spotify.